Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Culture Wars. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be having a fascinating conversation with Dr. Charles C. Camosi. He's an associate professor of theological and social ethics at Fordham University, and he's written some of the most fascinating essays on abortion that I've read. He's written multiple books on the topic, but I've always been fascinated by the progr- the, the progressive bent he takes to this discussion because, as most of you will know, the pro-life movement is made up of all sorts of different voices. There are atheist pro-lifers, there are Catholic pro-lifers, there are pro-lifers of every imaginable Christian denomination, Muslim pro-lifers, Jewish pro-lifers, vegan pro-lifers, and Charles Camosi... Uh, who was a member of Democrats for Life until he resigned uh, quite recently from that position, having given up on the Democratic Party due to their extreme turn on the abortion issue, has written some of the most well-thought-out issues, uh, essays, pardon me, on the abortion issue. And I really wanted to have a discussion with him on not only his perspective on the abortion debate, but his perspective on some of the political approaches that we can take to the abortion debate. Many of you will know from reading my columns that I've been very interested in what's going on in Hungary. I attended the National Conservatism Conference last July, was very interested by uh, the economic policies that would seek to address pro-family issues and how this could be used to reduce the abortion rate and save pre-born lives. So uh, Charles was, was kind enough to agree to come on this show We discussed his most recent book, Resisting Throwaway Culture, How a Consistent Life Ethic Can Unite a Fractured People. If you want to check out his other books, I do encourage you to go to charlescamosi.com, where you can find his books, you can find his commentary. They are very well worth the read, I assure you. He's got some very uh, interesting angles on this. Uh, He's got one book called Beyond the Abortion Wars, A Way Forward for a New Generation, Uh, For Love of Animals, Christian Ethics and Consistent Action, Uh, Peter Singer and Christian Ethics Beyond Polarization, and uh, other books. And so I'm going to present to you this conversation with Charles, and, and please do let me know what you think in the comments of this discussion. We're breaking the political binary here and talking about a variety of different solutions to Uh, reducing the abortion debate. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope to have uh, more conversations like this with Dr. Camosi in the future, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Well, just to start off, I guess uh, just to introduce yourself to the viewers and the listeners, could you maybe just tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to the pro-life position and a bit about how you see the world before we get into your books? Sure. Well, I grew up... uh cradle Catholic in the Midwest in the United States and just about an hour north of Chicago in a little town called Kenosha, Wisconsin. Was raised was raised by two very Catholic parents. My education was mostly nuns in elementary school. And I remember Sister Leonette showing me a picture of what an abortion was when I was in elementary school. I've never forgotten it. And at that moment I knew I was pro-life and I had I've I mean my surrounding views have shifted and changed, but that fundamental view about nonviolence for the prenatal child has always been at the center of who I am and who I was then. And uh, my first job, my first real job, in fact, was after my master's degree in theology, I really didn't know what else to do. So I took a job um, as a communications director for Pro-Life Wisconsin, which was um, an affiliate of American Life League, and, uh, and worked in um, uh, mostly a little bit of lobbying, a little bit of communications type stuff. But in part because they wouldn't take a stand against the death penalty, I, I knew I was a very, I was, I was a very committed, consistent pro-lifer at that point, and still am today. Um, I taught high school. Uh, I decided to move and teach high school where I could teach what I thought was a more holistic uh, pro-life view at a Catholic high school. And uh, it was teaching social justice and and medical ethics to high school juniors actually led me to think, well, maybe I need to go to graduate school and learn more about this. And uh, I went to Notre Dame and got my PhD in Christian ethics, focusing in bioethics. And I've been hired at Fordham University for the last 
12 years teaching theology and bioethics as well and um, have continued throughout that trajectory trying to do my research and teaching and service with that at the center of who I am. So let's talk a little bit about one of the things you've talked a lot about, which is sort of the uh, the seamless garment um, view of of of, of, uh, of the pro-life position or whole life. Now, there's two ways of looking at this. I want to look at the positive side of it and then also at the negative side, at the at the things that I think a lot of people agree on and then on the, on the critiques. Um, so, like, first and foremost, when we say uh, seamless garment, um, I'll just give you a bit of my impression because, interestingly enough, uh, back in the day, and I'm sure you know this, but when the rescue movement was first coming into to being in the late 60s, early 70s, and then eventually in the 80s, um, the rescue movement was actually developed by um, seamless garment Catholics who kind of cut their teeth on ban the bomb marches and then said, well, if, if, you know, if our views on human life and the sanctity of human life involve us uh, marching and uh, ban the bomb marches, and in some instances, actually, I, I believe, uh, um, committing civil disobedience around nuclear reactors, then perhaps we need to be uh, putting ourselves in the fray to save, save preborn as well. And so initially, uh, rather than the reputation it has now, uh, where where you have progressives who essentially use the, the 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 seamless garment as an excuse to vote Democrat or as a way to accuse pro-lifers of not being pro-life enough for not also having you know the pro-life position on a whole bunch of other issues as well. Initially, you had people moving in the other direction, people who were very uh, left-wing and progressive who were saying, "Oh, if we believe this on pollution, on the nuclear bomb, then we must also believe this on abortion." So maybe give us a sense of of uh, your view of the background of this, because a lot of people don't know this, but the pro-life movement started off a primarily democratic uh, and, and left-wing and progressive and liberal thing. Yeah, it sounds like you might be aware of the book, but just for your listeners who might not be aware, there's a great book called uh, Defenders of the Unborn by Daniel K. Williams. We had him on the podcast. Oh, you did? Yes, he's one of my favorite people. And um, uh, he details all of this in wonderful ways. I can't recommend the book highly enough for people who want to learn more about the kinds of um, things you just mentioned, which I was shocked to learn, <laughs> actually. Um, one thing I was shocked to learn is that the connection between pro-lifers who were anti-abortion and pro-lifers who were anti-war was just so explicit that pro-life anti-abortion marches and gatherings mirrored those of uh, that were anti-war, in fact, even to the point where, you know, they would sometimes burn their Vietnam draft cards, um, in the latter kind. In the former kind, they would burn their birth certificates as another kind of document that came from the government that was an oppressive document. Daniel K. Williams talks about this, this happening at the early pro-life. This was even before Roe versus Wade, which is the focus of his book. So I'm... I would, whenever I get criticized, and I do sometimes, as being a consistent, I, I prefer consistent ethic or consistent life ethic to seamless garment, but um, I try to point out, like, you know, the current um, way we think about this in terms of how the lines are drawn politically and whatnot didn't exist when the pro-life movement came to be a thing, and it need not exist the way it is. And I, I think, frankly, it doesn't exist anymore the way we kind of think of it as left-right or right. conservative. <laughs> but, um, but I'm all in with that, that kind of approach. Now, when we look at that approach, so the key criticism, just to, to, to look at that for a minute, would be uh, not a criticism of the consistent life, life ethic as as such, the criticism would more be um, by saying the pro-life movement is about all of these things rather than specifically about abortion is allowing those who are pro-abortion to basically attack us on all of these different fronts and therefore distract our focus from the, the key human rights issue we want to focus on. What would your response to that be? Well, at first, I'd say it's not an unfounded concern. So, um I would say people who make that judgment and, and criticism are not nuts or obviously wrong or something. I think it, for me, it comes down to a question of, you know, strategy and prudential judgment as right. much as anything. So my very strong sense of things, and maybe it's just, but I had this sense before I moved out to New York. Um, uh, my strong sense of things is that the main thing that keeps um, the average person from identifying themselves with the pro-life movement is 
that it doesn't see the kind of consistency in the movement that they would like to see. So it, it kind of, it'll, we allow ourselves to get marginalized as single issue or on one side of the debate issues, set of issues in ways that people say, well, I know what that is. Those are those people over there. And what I'm trying to do in my work, not only because I believe it's true, but as a matter of prudential judgment, is to, is to push back against that and say, you know right. what, we share a lot of the same principles and actually views on particular issues in common with you. I highlight my views about, we'll talk later in the podcast, I think about my views on animals and about immigration and about the death penalty, as I mentioned before, war, which we've already talked about. And suddenly it's a very different kind of conversation. I have to tell you, Jonathan, like I, a very skeptical person who wants to dismiss me as being a crazy right-wing religious fanatic suddenly says, well, wait a minute, you're a vegetarian or wait a minute, you're anti-war or wait a minute, you're against the death penalty. That's interesting. Let me hear more from you. Now, one of the interesting things I wanted to bring up, because I, I've, I've found that point that you make very, very interesting. And, and at the organization that I work for, he's one of the fellows, actually, that pointed me to your work. Um, he's actually a vegan for many of the same reasons you are. And it's one of the reasons he's a follower of your work. Um, and one of the things that I find interesting, however, there's a recent book that you may have read called Abortion Politics by a professor from the University of Chicago. It's not a super long book. Um, he wrote about Ten years ago, he wrote a book called The Making of Pro-Life Activists, where he examines from an academic point of view what brings people into the movement and what keeps them there. And in his book, Abortion Politics, he makes the argument that the reason the abortion debate is, is a lot more convoluted than people think is because most people, when they say pro-life or pro-choice, aren't actually referring to an ethical position. In fact, he makes the case that people who say they're pro-life um, it's only people inside the pro-life movement who have any sort of specific conceptualization of what that means. And same thing with the term pro-choice. It's only people inside the pro-choice movement. So, you know, NARAL or now who would have any like solid philosophical grounding as to what the term pro-choice means. So when we say people uh, move to one stage or another based on how they perceive the term pro-life, to what extent are these terms so much representative of, of just a, a way of seeing the world. Uh, and abortion politics makes the case that when you say you're pro-life, you don't necessarily mean I, I oppose Roe or, or, or I support X, Y, or Z. It simply means that you see the world a certain way and it's part of your, your, your tribal identification. With that in mind, do you think that explaining to people, well, uh, I think I'm being more consistent because I also hold these other positions is helpful? Or is the term pro-life sort of fundamentally useless in a lot of ways based on how it's being used now as a tribal identifier. Yeah, I would have to say that I always ask uh, my students, my interlocutors on this question, can you help us come up with different language other right. than life or choice? Because um, it's just a case that it often is just as you, well, you just laid it out very well. It often is about something other than abortion. Even It's about some kind of, identification with this group, but not with that. It's often about who I'm not. So I know I'm not pro-life because those people are right-wing crazy people. So I must be pro-choice or I must be pro-life because I'm not like those baby killers over there or something. Like that. Right. So I proposed in, a, in an op-ed a few years ago, maybe we could at least try to be more precise with four categories rather than two. Right. Could we talk about Anti-abortion, which, as you know, a lot of pro-lifers are starting to use now instead of um, calling themselves pro-life. Right. We talk about anti-abortion, consistent life, uh, pro-choice, and um, uh, pro-abortion rights. Um, I think especially on the quote-unquote other side, we have a lot of diversity with, in terms of their point of view. There are some good old-fashioned um, kind of political liberal pro-choicers out there who just don't want a government involved in people's lives. Right. But as you know, there are more reproductive justice folks who start to see this as a positive good. So even there, yes. I think we can we can, um, we can differentiate in ways that are helpful. But the bottom line is, you got to be very careful in using this kind of language because it can often uh, hide more than it reveals. Right, because I find the term anti-abortion helpful because my positions, which we'll get into in a minute, are, are very, very broad. I... Um, Based on uh, based on some of my positions on on maternal uh, health care, 
uh, paid maternity leave and all those things, I wouldn't really fall into the conservative camp. But at the same time, based on my social positions, I'd be considered a radical conservative by by anybody uh, progressive. Plus, I, I, I support a lot of these so-called progressive policies specifically because I believe they would save babies from abortion. I have a very consequentialist view of, of why I support those policies to begin with. But I like the term anti-abortion just because I find it's it's sort of concise and it allows me to express my position on that one issue without having to get dragged into those debates. Like, I'm anti-abortion first. And then, in addition to all of that, here are the strategic ways I think that we can um, we can combat abortion, which I think is a multi-pronged approach. Um, and in, in the United States, I think it's more difficult to discuss some of the approaches that are being taken by Hungary, Israel, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, and, and other places, which are um, effective based on on what we're seeing. So one of the, the big things I wanted to discuss with you is breaking out of the political binary, which I assume is, is not possible, but it still makes for an interesting discussion. And one of the, the I realized how uh, hardcore the political binary was when I went with a pro-life group to uh, Barack Obama's second inauguration in Washington, D.C., and we were going to man a huge pro-life display set up on Pennsylvania Avenue where people were leaving the parade ground. So they'd be walk for a bit and they'd come past as a display. We can engage them in conversation. Um, and so we had this big display up and part of me was like, this is a really terrible idea. Um, <laughs> there's a huge pro-life display up. This is um, him winning a second term. He's the most pro-abortion uh, president in the history of the Democratic Party at the time. Um, those, those, that, that seems like a long time ago now. Um, and, and one of the interesting things, though, was um, I have never, I don't think I've ever met such a supportive crowd of people in my life. There was, you know, one African-American guy comes up, he emptied the money out of his pocket and said, like, I told my daughter to get an abortion and she didn't. And thank God my grandchild's beautiful. There are people giving us high fives. There were a lot of people who came up and said, is this about Obama? And we would say, this is about abortion. And they would flip and say, oh, well, we support your position on abortion. Uh, you know, and these people wearing like dinner plate sized Obama buttons, you know, this guy, the guy who is a huge abortion supporter. And it just helped me realize that there are large constituencies inside the Democratic Party who are very sympathetic to the pro-life position, but their vo- their voting behavior is is ab- absolutely runs contrary to the pro-life position. It, the same thing is true for a lot of uh, of Hispanic voters um, who are very instinctually pro-life. A lot of them are, are Catholic, as you know. Um, so how do we break out of the political binary? Like a side note about the, the primaries, one of the things the Democrats wouldn't talk about is the reason African-American voters, according to internal polling, selected Joe Biden um, over, say, a Bernie Sanders or a Pete Buttigieg is they're very socially conservative uh, compared to the, your average Democratic white voter. Um, and they're not calming enough to go for for Bernie Sanders. So how do we, is it possible to break out of the binary, and what do you make of this interesting divide where a lot of black evangelicals and black Christians would also be pro-life but are still voting pro-abortion? And uh, how, do we, how do we break out of all of this? Well, there's a lot there, but I'll start by saying I think we're already breaking out of it. Okay. Um, uh, the term Democrat, the term Republican, the, the concept of right, the concept of left in the United States, it's not even clear that those have a referent anymore. So what was the left position on like trade, for instance, is now the position of the so-called right. And we just completely flipped on it, right? So what, 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 how can that be a meaningful distinction if you can just flip in one election cycle? But um, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump and I made that clear, but one thing that has come about that's been good from his perspective, from my perspective is, it's created a lot of creative space um, politically. So um, it was interesting. They, there was a, um, I think it's even more complex than this, but if you get beyond right and left, you start thinking of the Y axis on a graph as being social conservative liberal and the X axis being you know, economic liberal versus conservative. There's this upper left quadrant of social conservatives and economic liberals. It's a monstrous quadrant of people that voted for um, in the last election. Trump cleaned up, by the way, in that quadrant. And there was almost no one in the other quadrant that was uh, opposite it, you know, the socially liberal and economically conservative. There was almost no one in it. But those are the people who kind of are our talking heads, who write op-eds in major newspapers, who, you know, are the editors in our major uh, newspapers and and broadcast journalism schools. And um, 
so they get a disproportionate, we all, we call it the Acela corridor folks, those who go back and forth between New York and DC on the Acela train. Those people are, are just a tiny minority. We are shifting in this country in dramatic ways. And there's a huge group of those people in that upper left quadrant. So I call them alks. I don't know if that's a better, come up with a better term than alks, but who are just completely not served by any party, by any constituency. And, um, the ferment that's been created by Donald Trump's election, where people are not really voting for a particular party, they're mostly voting against someone they hate as opposed mm-hmm. to what they are for, which is a toxic situation, by the way, but it's where we are. There really is a, a political shift underway, a political, and we don't know where it's going to end up. The pandemic, by the way, has kicked that into another level. Um, right. So I'm hopeful that maybe not next election cycle, but soon after that we're going to have a very different we, we might st- there might still be political parties we call democrats and republicans i don't know but the the kind of shifting that ha- that already is taking place is substantial we already see like people like senator josh Hawley in the republican party talking about massive massive changes economically in favor of workers for instance and nobody's more pro-life than he is i, I might call him an ulk in fact so I'm, I'm conscious of how long i'm going on here but but my very strong sense and to answer your question is the binary is going away. It might already have gone away. And now we need to seize that moment and start trying to fill it and say like, well, what, where will we go um, apart from that binary? So it seems to, to many observers that, that, that the abortion industry now owns the Democratic Party. And you wrote an op-ed, I believe, in the New York Post describing why you left the Democratic Party. And then a short time later, as if to prove your point, the New York Times ran an article saying that um, Trump's tweets and, and and the way he talks and stuff drives uh, young people away and then abortion brings them back, which was a pretty, pretty good summary of, of the fact that he has a monopoly on a lot of voters basically over like to put it put in really crude terms. Their position is, you know what, Trump might be a lot of things, but at least he doesn't think it's OK to kill a baby at nine months. Um, that's the general perspective you'll hear from a lot of people. And they'll say, like, that's not nothing, as Rod Dreher says. And Rod Dreher's no Trump fan, but that's the way the way that he'll word it. But really interestingly, so um, were you at the national, like there was a national conservatism conference. It's interesting you brought up Josh Hawley because he spoke there last summer. Uh, And the first time I went to CPAC was in 2010. And the difference between CPAC and then you've got this national conservatism conference um, uh, last summer, there's now been one in Europe as well, which of course is a much different deal. But you've got people pitching ideas like Orrin Cass pitching a national industrial policy that it sounds like an FDR uh, you know, Democrat thing from from the from the 40s and the 50s, back when the political parties were so close that Congress struck a committee to find out how to how to get some daylight in between the Republicans and the Democrats. Um, but it seems like uh, during the, like, there was a debate between Orrin Cass and another conservative professor, and at one point he kind of lost his temper. He said, "I thought we were conservative," um, but the ideas being pitched at this conference were old school economic liberal ideas because there was seemed to be a recognition that like, look, the corporations are now trying to enforce sort of the LGBT agenda. They're the ones threatening to pull out of Georgia for passing a pro-life law. So, you know, we're, we're, we're basically cutting taxes for people who hate us. Um, and the social conservatives often just want to want a break. They want, uh, you know, an economic leg up. So do you think that some of these new ideas coming forward um, present the possibility that there can be a new union between people who are more liberal economically but socially conservative? Yeah, I think in some ways we already have it. Another important uh, factor in this person who's a major factor in this is Tucker Carlson, who is the highest rated show in cable news, depending on whether it's him or Sean Hannity in a particular night, it sounds like. Um, that guy is explicitly critical of the kind of neoliberal capitalism that is just kind of, and libertarian in some ways, capitalism, that at least has been the caricature of what Republicans since, um, you know, the election of Ronald Reagan back uh, in 1980. So uh, if, a, if a person like Tucker Carlson can be the most successful, arguably the most successful talking head on Fox News, then something interesting is happening. Yeah. Um, uh, about in, in this movement. Um, and people, sometimes people describe it as populism. I mean, that might be one way to describe it. I think it's more complex than that. There, there was, um, you know, this, and it's been talked about extensively, so maybe your, your audience is already aware of it, but was, there was this kind of fusionism in, the, in 1980 to try to elect, elect Ronald Reagan, where we, we jammed three constituent groups together that didn't really have that much in common with each other. We had social conservatives, we had 
neoliberal or kind of libertarian economics folks, and we had, you know, the neoconservative kind of anti-war uh, interventionists or pro-war interventionists. And they made it work for some time, but that is now, that fusion has fallen apart and Donald Trump is the evidence of that, it seems to me. And now these constituencies are really kind of looking around, like what's next? How are we going to, like who are, we almost have coalition government like they have in Europe without really calling it coalition government. You know, we, right. the, the coalitions move around and, and, and so that that's might that might be where we're at right now. If we want to keep two placeholders, some people say that are know politics better than I do, political science better than I do, that our system is not set up for having multiple parties. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not. But at the very least, we have these groups that have that were coalesced in one way, a very clear way, in the eighties, um, who are not at all coalesced right now at all. And are kind of and, and so maybe there can be this kind of Carlson, Howley, even Ben Sass, I think, has some interesting points of view along these lines. Uh, Marco, Marco, Rubio, Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio. Yeah, he's he's leading the charge in some ways for a particular kind of paid family leave plan yeah. with with the president's daughter. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's my answer to your question. Yes, there can be, and I'm I'm doing my part to try to help my little part to try to help that along. Yeah, I've actually said before, too, if, if, if Carlson wasn't on TV and he just wrote books, he'd be the most interesting columnist there is right now. Um, if he didn't have to do the Fox shtick and he just stuck to like Ship of Fools was a fascinating book because he also didn't try to pretend he knew more than he knew. He's like, he, he, I'm a journalist. Here's my observations. I'm, my final chapter isn't going to be, you know, how to fix it all. He's like, this is just what I'm noticing um, like when he, when he said, read Elizabeth Warren's the two parent trap, I'm like, I checked the cover. I'm like, am I reading Tucker Carlson's book or, 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 or what is this? Right. Um, so looking at that shift, I kind of wanted to ask you what, what some of your solutions to this are. So I've, I've done a lot of research over the last couple of years, um, in terms of how the abortion rate is reduced, because one of the things I've noted is that North America, so both Canada and the U S have extremely high abortion rates compared to countries with better social safety nets. So the Netherlands is, is at like half of North America's rate. Um, Israel has cut their rate down by about 51% in the last 24 years. The mo- uh, Germany has cut theirs down by 30%. I think the most famous example, of course, too, regardless of what you think of Viktor Orban, um, the, the Hungarian experiment, I think, is one we should be watching very closely because they've cut the abortion rate down by double digits year over year. Um, they're encouraging marriage, encouraging strong families. Um, and interestingly, they're kind of disproving the old libertarian adage, the convenient libertarian adage, that politics is uh, always downstream from culture without recognizing the influence that the government can actually utilize in order to shape culture, because Hungary's actually doing it. If you look at the marriage rate, the divorce rate, the abortion rate, there's some there's some really good news there. So even if you take the most pessimistic analysis of what they're pulling off, it really is just quite something. And so... I've said now for a while that I think Republicans in, in, in the United States and conservatives in Canada should be championing these sorts of policies because we should just be the pro-family party. Um, we should recognize that, the, like, like, you know, tax Amazon, tax all the big corporations and give that money back to people um, who actually need it. I don't really care how that sounds. I think it would be electorally successful. I think, it, it, I think it's morally defensible, and I think it would be a better country uh, for everybody to to live in. That's why the National Conservatism Conference was a, was was a great was a great thing to attend because everybody was saying this sort of thing. It felt very heretical. What what is your take on 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 how we can respond, especially to the family falling apart? Because I think one of the things that libertarians fail to recognize is that when the when the sexual revolution ran its course and the family started to fall apart, they had nothing to say to people from broken families. Right? It's pull yourself up by your bootstraps. What if I don't have any? Tough luck, bud. Right. Uh, that was sort of it. So what's your take on how we can best respond to all of this? Well, just to add a little exclamation point to your to the point you just made. I, I teach at Fordham, in which has its main headquarters in the Bronx. The main campus is in the Bronx, New York, which is one of the poorest places, contains the poorest, some of the poorest places in the country. The abortion rate um, over the last 10 years has been somewhere between um, 40 and 50 percent of the, the entire Bronx yeah, of every, wow. of every, of every pregnancy. Now you can't tell me, especially given that the Bronx is dominated by people of color who are disproportionately anti-abortion, that there isn't something structural going on here 
in terms of that kind of abortion rate. You, no one can tell me that. And by the way, when I told, tell those numbers to almost any person, regardless of their view on abortion, the reaction is almost always universally some kind of like, look like you're giving me now, like a horrific look. Like, I can't believe that's actually the case, even from very strongly pro-choice people. So we have to do something. And by the way, now that New York state has passed, passed the Reproductive Health Act, I, I've encouraged pro-lifers in my state, the state where I work anyway, I live in New Jersey, but work in New York, to um, try to think more creatively about the um, supply side, if you will, or the um, demand side of abortion rather than the supply side of abortion. Right. Um, because we, we really are out of uh, luck in New York State. We have to wait for something federal to come through when it comes to um, restricting abortion, the supply side. But there's tremendous amount we can do on the demand side. And we have to do it on the demand side. It's really our only option at this point. And you outlined some very important examples of how that's worked in other countries. And again, we can uh, debate the reasons behind those. But the, the proof of concept is there. We have it now. And then some of my arguments with my pro-life friends about this, I say, are you really interested in saving babies' lives primarily? Or are you interested, are you more interested in passing laws? And I'm not of the view that passing laws won't restrict abortion. I think it does restrict abortion. And I think we absolutely have to have restrictive laws, especially as a matter of justice for prenatal children. But by the same token, if we're interested in saving babies' lives, we now know that this stuff saves babies' lives and also helps their mothers. So um, there's really no more actual empirical debate about this question. Pro-lifers ought to be interested in these economic proposals because they save the lives of babies. Now you could be also interested in it because of justice questions for their mothers and others and the family, you know, and, and family issues and stuff like that. But there's no more debate. They save the lives of prenatal children. Well, and, and there's also just the, the shifting political winds that you referred to earlier. I find it ironic that Republican policies will give tax cuts to corporations who are threatening to boycott states who pass pro-life laws. Like this coalition is just fundamentally untenable to me in so many different ways. And the corporations themselves will do things like, um, I think like Apple, for instance, said, well, you can, you can freeze your eggs with us. We'll pay for your egg freezing, but we're not going to pay for your childcare, for instance, you know? Um, and so those, those corporations, which have a disproportionate incentive to say things like that, to keep the women working and creating capital for themselves and creating profits for their shareholders, which is their primary reason for being, um, have every incentive to not have the concerns that you and I have just been articulated for the last 10 minutes or so. They don't want, it, it affects their bottom line to have the kinds of concerns that you just mentioned. But if, if conservatives are truly going to conserve things like the family, like priority for the least among us, then we have to push back against that. We cannot be ruled by the interests of uh, powerful shareholders of our most powerful corporations. So there was one question I wanted to ask you, and it wasn't in the original list of questions we were going to discuss, but uh, because you brought up Carlson's book, one of the interesting new questions that came forward, it was a lot of the National Conservatism Conference, was conservatives used to think the biggest threat was government. And, and, and to some degree, that's an understandable position. In certain contexts, it's, it's a very defensible position. But Carlson consistently makes the point that what if Google is far more dangerous than the government. Google knows more about you. It can predict how you're going to act. It listens to you during private conversations. Um, there's a book uh, by Shoshana Zukov called uh, uh, Surveillance Capitalism um, that came out last year. It's a, it's a really terrifying dystopian book. Um, what are your thoughts on on that, that, that may, perhaps once we realize that we're going to need government to defend us from some of these monopolies, that it's just like the, that the shift you, uh, you, you pinpointed earlier is actually going to be more fundamental than people think. No, I agree. And I would, I would um, talk about fusionism. I would talk about a fusionism between government and major tech corp corporations and, and private equity and other folks, because <clears throat> it's that fusion, which, which poses the worst risk of all. I mean, we've seen during the pandemic, uh, YouTube, which is, which is Google, right? Um, I think you you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think YouTube has said we're going to take down any content that contradicts the um, the who you know the yep. um, uh, 
which has been wrong on so many powerful and important questions throughout this process. I mean, that's just one example, but you can think of many, many others where, I mean, now Google has been indispensable for free speech for a long time. I mean, Twitter now, same thing. Um, we, we have to think bigger about and, di more, and differently and more creatively than we used to about this and say, well, what, what, what does free speech look like, defending free speech look like? when both government and corporations working together have, a, have an interest in not having uh, particular free speech. So that's gonna be, or religious freedom or any of these other things that conservatives wanna conserve. Um, so it's gotta be more than just an anti-government piece. It's gotta be um, the anti-new fusionism, if you will, between government and corporations, especially tech, big tech. Mm -hmm. So, where do you see the common ground emerging on issues like the abortion issue? This is part of your life's work. And so uh, in what way do you see the pro-life movement, let's say the apolitical pro-life movement, um, to the extent that that still exists, where is the common ground between be, between the, the, the educational arm of the pro-life movement and, and liberals who can be coaxed over to, to the pro-life position? Well, for many years now, decades in fact, Gallup has been polling people on abortion on the question of trimesters. So do you want abortion legal or illegal in the first trimester, second trimester, third trimester? One of the most consistent polls they have is this poll. And what they find is that about six in 10 US Americans want abortion legal before week 12. We have some work to do with first trimester. Seven in 10 want it illegal after week 12. Seven in 10 in the United States want it illegal after week 12. And then after into the third trimester, support just absolutely falls off the cliff. There's almost nobody that supports um, right. legal abortion in the third trimester. This despite the fact that the Democratic Party now, whatever that is again, has um, into their platform, built into their platform, absolutely no restrictions at all and, and forcing pro-lifers to support abortion with their tax dollars and no conscience exceptions either. It's just the most radical position you could possibly imagine. One of the reasons I ended up leaving Democrats for Life, I used to be on the board of Democrats for Life, I'm now a member of the American Solidarity Party. Anyway, this is common ground. 12 weeks is common ground, you know, in the United States. Uh, but if somebody were, were to propose, and people do propose bills banning abortion after 12 weeks, it would be described by the people in the Acelida Corridor as a wild, like, right-wing conspiracy to deny women their reproductive autonomy or something like that, when in reality, it's just what, in fact, Americans believe about abortion. It should be largely legal before week 12, largely illegal after. Interestingly, it mirrors a lot of, as you know, a lot of European countries' positions. On this. European countries um, often have uh, restrictions in the 12 to 14-week range. Um, despite their reputation as being, again, liberal, these terms are not helpful in my opinion, but being progressive, they have those positions as well. So I think that's, I know that's common ground, in fact. If we could have an open and honest conversation about abortion, 12 weeks would be common ground. That's on the um, supply side, if you will. On the demand side, and I show this in my book, both of these points in my book, Beyond the Abortion Wars, um, there's very serious support for the kind of positions you just articulated, not only among conservatives, but obviously more progressive people. You know, you want to get on board with paid family leave? Let's do it. You want to get on board with um, child care, help with child care? Let's do it. You want to get on board with making it easier for women um, to be mothers and professionals at the same time? Let's do it. And so there, there's, there would just be a very interesting coalition of people who would be supportive of those um, demand side, if you will, kind of concerns, as, um, which, which if you, and, and I'll make this final point on this question, when I was working with Democrats for Life, we tried to get this done. So we had the Pain Capable Act, which would have banned abortion in the United States after 20 weeks. Um, and it was dead on arrival because of Democrats. And, um, but there, there could have been a few people we might have been able to shift to pass it. And so I was working with my friends at Democrats for Life and we were lobbying and we said, well, what if, what if we attached a paid family leave bill to it or we had some kind of, um, you know, we, we tie barred them together. We thought about them together in some way. That's, first of all, that's the only way this bill has a chance to pass right now, but it also makes good sense. It, it's like good common sense to people. Like, well, yes, I would in principle support 20 week ban, but oh yeah, it makes good sense too that we would try to support women who are in difficult situations this way with paid family leave. 
Um, unfortunately, that never got off the ground with um, the kind of uh, pro-life establishment that we had um, at the time in the United States. And But it is common sense. I think that's it, going in those directions is where we need to be going in terms of trying to find the common ground you were just mentioning. Well, I'm a fan of the idea of omnibus bills that basically make a list um, of all the different things the abortion movement highlights. Right. You can't have you can't ban abortion at 20 weeks because of like X, Y, Z situation. So just pass an omnibus bill that that actually works to ensure that X, Y, Z situation is responded to with the genuine compassion, help and care that are needed rather than seeing abortion as, as just the solution. And. So one of the things I really wanted to get in with you, and I want I want our, our our listeners and our viewers to take a look at this if they can, is your book Throwaway Culture. So maybe you could just lay out just for starters, what is the thesis of your book Throwaway Culture? Because I felt like a lot of your observations really dovetailed into the sort of things um, that even though that Carlson was talking about, right? When he said like plastic junk isn't <clears throat> making us happier, it's why people are blowing their brains out in front of expensive widescreen TVs. Right. So maybe you can just lay out the thesis uh, of your book and, and what prompted you to write it in the first place. Well, to be honest with you, it started with the critique that you laid out at the very beginning about the seamless garment. So I knew a lot of people, people I loved and respected um, in the pro-life movement had deep criticisms of the seamless garment, consistent life ethic approach. And when I looked around the literature, academic and popular, I didn't see a very good articulation of a consistent life ethic, actually. I saw what Bernadine had written, Cardinal Bernadine, who is the kind of the originator of the concept. Um, Pope St. John Paul II wrote an encyclical called The Gospel of Life, Evangelium Vitae, which is inherently, I would argue, consistent life, but doesn't name it as such. It's not widely known as that. And so I just, I guess I just wanted to write up a coherent vision of what this looks like so that people can't just I'm a big fan of the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. I might um, be dating myself by saying that, but Calvin plays with his uh, stuffed tiger, pretends he's a real person, this game called Calvin Ball, where there's no rules. You make up the rules as you go along and you play Calvin Ball. I think the criticism of the consistent life ethic was that you just, you're just making up these rules. There is no coherence to this. Right. And so I wanted to say, you know, there are rules, in fact. There are principles. And in fact, they're at the heart of the consistent life ethic because what's consistent about the ethic is applying the principles and rules consistently across a range of issues. So if you say you're for welcoming life in pregnancy, then you're, you should be for, you should have that preference in every situation, not just in pregnancy and abortion. You should be welcoming and accommodating of especially vulnerable life, especially life that is at risk of being discarded and thrown away in many different kinds of contexts. In some ways, that's the heart of the, I'm a deeply committed Christian Catholic, as you know, I mentioned that earlier, that's at the heart of the gospel. And um, so what we have, though, in our culture is the opposite of that welcoming, the opposite of that um, culture of encounter and hospitality that Pope Francis talks about. And so I wanted to highlight that across a range of issues and say, you know, our throwaway culture is present in abortion for reasons that are probably so obvious we don't even need to go into them, that's present in euthanasia. It's present in our hookup culture, by the way, where we use and throw away people in a in our sexual way, in a sexual culture. Uh, but it's also present in how we treat animals. It's also present in how we treat immigrants. It's also present in how we treat people who violate the law. Um, it's also present in how we treat um, those who go to war for us. Even. I mean, the numbers of people who are homeless because of what we've forced them to do um, by sending them off to war is extraordinary. And these people are literally thrown away in our streets and suffering from incredible mental illness, something I talk about in the book as well. And so um, this throwaway culture is about the plastic stuff and ecological concerns surrounding that. And we just use and throw away. But the way I connect it to life issues is to say we have throwaway people as well that we use right. and throw away. And when it comes to IVF, literally. Literally, literally. You want, uh, I mean, one of the ways that sex selection is done now, um, as you probably know, is they get very good at identifying XX versus XY embryos, and you can pick the XX and throw out the XY if that's what you want, or the ones who are, quote, doing better as opposed to the other ones or something like that, too. So... One of the uh, the other questions that I had to ask you uh, on your book, Throwaway Culture, which I, I do find your perspectives on that fascinating because I, I think that on some issues, 
um, like veganism. I'd be a, a more on the conservative side of the fence um, to you are, but uh, there's enormous common ground because I think I, well, I, like lowercase t traditionalism is really taking off in conservative circles again as they're realizing that we should not be destroying um, the environment, that conservationism is a, is a conservative thing, uh, realizing that allowing corporations to do things um, like the, the the wealth isn't trickling down, right? Um, like this is something that Tucker Carlson brings up all the time. Uber and Amazon don't even don't even give health benefits to their employees. Um, they they virtue signal on on LGBT issues and things like that because it allows them to get a pass from the left while they ignore doing the real things that they could actually do that might cost them a a, a tiny share of their profits. Um, and so I overlap with you on, on a lot of these things, especially because uh, one, one pro-lifer said to me, well, some of these government programs that you're suggesting are just bribing women out of abortions. And I said, yeah, you wouldn't do that? Because um, uh, to, be, to be completely honest, we're willing to do pretty much everything else. And I said, if, if I believe abortion is what it is. Um, I should be perfectly willing to bribe her out of them. And they say some people might take advantage of the system. I'm like, I don't care. Is the kid still alive? Um, like, it, to be honest, that really doesn't that really doesn't bother me all that much. And maybe that's not a conservative thing. But um, at the end of the day, uh, a child being destroyed in a horrific fashion, uh, if there's a tool that we can use that has been proven to work in places like Hungary, I want us to be using it here. Uh, and that's because life is infinitely precious and, and money isn't. Um, when it comes to overlap, though, interestingly, one of the questions uh, my colleague Blaise Elaine, who I work with at the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, he wanted uh, me to ask you specifically about the overlap between your ethics and Peter Singer's on the issue of animal rights. He's a he's a full time pro life activist and a vegan, and so where would that overlap be? I, that's a really weird question for people who aren't aware of who are just aware of Peter Singer as the infanticide guy and not the animal rights guy. So maybe you can lay out a bit for us what your position on on the overlap there would be. Yeah, so I used to be in the Peter Singer is the devil camp uh, before I actually read him carefully. And you can understand why somebody's in that camp. I mean, if you all you hear is his views about infanticide and um, euthanasia, you'd yeah. be justified in thinking that. But now I've, I've, I wrote a book called Peter Singer and Christian Ethics Beyond Polarization and come to see Peter Singer is actually a, at least a very close colleague, probably, probably a friend of some kind actually. And in part because I see him, well, a number of reasons, but in one big one is he's actually willing to, to do the math and follow the reasoning wherever it goes. Uh, a lot of my pro-choice friends are not. So he says, listen, if a fetus is not a person, a newborn infant is not a person either because newborn infants aren't rational and self-aware like you and I are having this conversation right now. So if you're pro-choice for abortion, you ought to be pro-choice for infanticide. And he points out historically, we were pro-choice for infanticide for a very long time until Christianity came into power. Mm -hmm. and, and we had a consistent life ethic that said, no, we're not going to do that. In fact, one of the earliest documents we have from the early Christian church, the Didache, explicitly connects abortion and fantasize together. Also interestingly, and I talk about this in my, my latest book, it also connects concern for the poor with that. But I, was, I taught Peter Singer as a graduate student and um, I was forced to, I, because I, I, like Peter, care deeply about the arguments and the evidence, I was forced to wrestle with his arguments about animal protection. And um, he convinced me. He convinced me that uh, not that animals are, are equals, they're not. He doesn't think that any either. But he does think that when we compare various interests, we need to compare them without what he calls speciesism. So if we say, you know, the interest I have in eating X is not outweighed by the interests of X's desire to lead a flourishing life or something like that, then whatever X is, it's, you got to be consistent in that, in that, um, in that in that uh, in that analysis, and so he he talks about like well if we if we look at other cultures that eat dogs for instance and we say the dog's interest in leading a flourishing life uh, is outweighed by that culture's desire to eat dogs they should not eat dogs um, then we should think the same way about pigs today because um, there's virtually no difference actually in terms of the cognitive ability in fact there are YouTube videos I show my students of pigs playing video games they're incredibly smart creatures. Um, and so I was just left with, as somebody who cares about rationality, cares about consistency, cares about 
making an argument that is defensible and also cares about living out my principles consistently, I, he eventually had me checkmated and I had to say, that's right. Um, but then I also reached into my own tradition and said, you know, what's going on with, you know, Catholic theology and Christian theology. And it turns out quite a lot. I, as I was doing this, it, this was a, an, um, an academic area that was just bubbling up in academic theology, moral theology and Christian ethics. And so I was, Part of these very interesting conversations with pro-lifers by the way almost all of them were explicitly anti-abortion pro-lifers um one of them is my good friend john berkman i'm actually going to be at a dissertation defense remotely with one of his students who's a pro-lifer also working on animal ethics in theology and uh and none of us believe that you know a pig is equal to a prenatal child none of us think that but we do think that our principles of nonviolence, care for the vulnerable speaking up for those who can't speak up for themselves, our principles we should apply in those contexts as well, even if they're not as important. Like I, I'm not somebody again who get, who just collapses the difference. There are important differences. But I can walk and chew gum at the same time. And I can also point to conversations I've had with people, again, back to an earlier point, who would look at me one way if all they knew I was pro-life, but look at me a different way if they know that I care about animals. And so if I can tell them you know why you care about animals? It's because of these principles. You know how those principles end up playing out in abortion? Now we're starting to having a very interesting conversation. One last point on this, given that we're talking about structures and corporations. I have a deeper, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. I have a deep respect for hunting, actually. Like I am not a hunter. I don't think it's the best thing to do, but I have deep respect for people who are willing to say, I have a relationship with the land, I have a relationship with animals, and I kill animals, and I respect them in this process, and I eat and them myself, and I dress them myself. That's one thing altogether. That's a separate kind of conversation. What almost all of us do who eat meat today, however, we participate in a structure of sin called factory farming, in which corporations now don't think of animals anywhere like at all like hunters do. They think of them as literally the literature refers to them as protein units per square foot. They want to maximize protein units per square foot. And so I have respect and I have a good, I have a good relationship with people who say, you know, I don't want to give up meat totally. I think there's some that's legitimate, but I don't want to participate in um, or horrific structure of sin that reduces animals which God created good on the same day as human beings, day six, as protein units per square foot and horrific, torturous conditions. Surely we can say that's something we ought not to participate in while having interesting, important, maybe even sometimes fun arguments about other kinds of situations. I've always found like the, the, that point very interesting just because if you look at the history of social reformers, which pro-lifers often do, um, love for animals was actually always one of the things that characterized them, right? William Wilberforce began what what's, what 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 ended up being the first SPCA. Abraham Lincoln once said, "I've never trusted a man's Christianity if his dog wasn't better off for it." Um, I can sort of work my way through the list of, of the major social reformers who saw cruelty to animals as something wicked. The only question I had on this, and it's not because I have my own opinion yet, it's it's explicitly because I don't have my own opinion, is that the case that other people would make, it's a utilitarian case, but this is the case they'd make, is that despite the fact that factory farming should be done better, that it that it is dehumanizing is the wrong word, but but, but I, I, I know what you mean, like basically taking animals that God created good and then explicitly calling them, you know, proteins per unit, etc. That one of the reasons we've lifted so many people out of poverty worldwide and that one of the reasons so many people haven't starved is because we've perfected sort of the mass production of food. And that as somebody um, who holds more liberal progressive views, too, on how we ought to care for the poor, is there a conflict between, well, yes, um, this this system of, of food production is imperfect. In some cases, it's cruel. It needs to be improved on. However, without it, you're going to see, you know, families starving that then don't need to be. Is there a tension there or do you not see one there? Uh, I can understand why someone would have the question, but I think, I mean, tell me what you think. This is my response to that general and important concern. And to be to be perfectly blunt, though, I think few people have that concern. I think what they actually have is they don't want to give up their burger, right? They're very cheap. Burger. Right. <laughs> um, but let's take the concern seriously. So um, if you have an acre of land and you want to produce as many calories as you can to feed people who need it, 
it makes very little sense to grow a bunch of vegetables and then feed them to an animal and then eat part of the animal. It's very inefficient. Um, It's better to create a situation where you maximize the amount of calories from the first place and then distribute those calories or create systems that distribute those calories in the most efficient way possible in ways that get to the most vulnerable. Um, And so I think there are questions to ask that about plants and about, you know, GMOs and about um, economic systems and about mass farming and versus small farming and those kinds of questions. But when it comes to health around the world, it's really about the amount of calories you get and having eating a lot of meat is actually not very good for uh, worldwide health. Some of the healthiest cultures, in fact, um, either eat don't eat meat hardly at all and mostly eat fish or they um they have meat you know kind of as a as a special thing historically meat was a special thing you would kill the fatted calf for instance because it was a party food um and at the very least that's what i would that's what i would like us to try to recover again is this idea that less meat i mean this is where a lot of activist organizations in fact are going because if you just get everyone to eat less meat then you have essentially what you would have if you had a lot, a lot of people get, having no meat. So um, what a lot of activist organizations are now saying is, you know, can we convince people that it's better to eat less meat for themselves, for the mm. environment, for the animals themselves, we get smaller farms, pay more for meat, so you eat less of it, that's another thing. The, the prices themselves are not real prices, or at least from an ethics perspective, they're not real prices, because we had to torture and, and mangle these i mean just give you one example um turkeys are now so bred so large they can't have sex with each other their their breasts are too large so every turkey that's made in these factory farms has to be artificially inseminated and um some i don't know if you ever remember the show dirty jobs but they had a they had an episode of dirty jobs about the poor people that had to procure the semen for the artificial insemination um Another example, they're now using, um, they're now using uh, biotechnology to breed um, hens and chickens who never are, they breed the, um, genetically breed out the feeling of satiation, so they eat as much and as quickly as possible and get as large as they possibly can. So in addition to their torturous existence before, now because of biotechnology, we've created a situation where they never feel full, they feel constantly hungry. Surely we can say we will pay more for meat um, and make it a, le- a sometimes food rather than all the time food and, and lead happier lives, lead more ecologically flourishing lives, um, healthier lives, happier lives, and nothing will have been lost in terms of our enjoyment of life. But a lot will have been gained in terms of how we think about animals. Another thing that's small, and I'll finish on this point. Another thing that has been lost is, the re- again, the relationship with the animals. Big farms that treat animals as protein units per square foot can't possibly acknowledge the goodness of God's creation uh, in the systems that they exist in, given especially some of what I just articulated. However, the smaller farms can. Again, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, where tons of farming was going on, animals everywhere. I guess I knew those animals were dying at a certain point, but at least up to the point where they were killed, the farmers, the small farmers I grew up around, cared a lot about those animals. Sometimes they gave them names, Mm-hmm. In my own family, uh, my mom describes that on her farm in northern Illinois that she grew up on. So if we can, maybe we can disagree about vegetarianism or veganism, but if we can even move in the direction of saying, let's, cre- let's acknowledge God's creation as good, the way God created it, um, as we go on to eat meat, I think that would be a huge step in the right direction. Well, and again, interestingly, your arguments are are, are sort of perfectly timed on that because you've got the... Wendell Berry getting getting really popular again, lower T traditionalism, which I have to distinguish from bigger T traditionalism, which is weird metaphysical stuff, but lower T traditionalism again becoming uh, becoming very popular. So a lot of those arguments about small scale. What was that quote that I read recently from one of them? He said, "Yeah, yeah eternal growth is the ideology of the cancer cell," which I thought, uh, oh, which was a really good way of of putting it. Like these farms should not keep on growing it's funny you mentioned that i grew up on like what was a hobby farm and we had all these like specialty chickens that literally were just they just looked nice that's why we had them and they all had names and 
And uh, and it was yeah, you, you did have a, a different sort of relationship there. I didn't even know that that thing about the turkeys. That's brutal. Um, that's 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 really really awful. But yeah, I guess the final question because we're at our hour here is just where can our listeners and our viewers uh, find your works? Um, I've I've posted about uh, about your articles before, but where can they uh, where can they get copies of your books to explore your thinking for themselves? Well, my books are not the kind that they're going to find in bookstores. It looks like we're not really going to bookstores anyway. Probably the easiest place to go is just to put my last name into Amazon or Barnes and Noble or someplace. C A M O S Y and I'm the author of five books. I mentioned a few of them. My most recent one is Resisting Throwaway Culture. And if people are interested in listening to it, I recently um, did the audiobook for it. So okay. um, it's on Audible and iTunes as well. Unfortunately, you have to listen to my voice, but uh, I did my best. <laughs> well, thanks so much for taking the time to have this discussion. I really appreciate it. No, it was my pleasure. I had a good time. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Charles Camosi. You can head over to thebridgehead.ca to check out my almost daily commentary. You can check out my other podcast as well, The Van Maren Show on YouTube. You can subscribe there. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we do hope you'll join us again for the next show. Thanks so much. Bye.